In order to see, we need light. That's obvious, almost too obvious even to say out loud. Of course we need light to see. If it's dark, you can't see. But have you ever thought about why? Why is it that we need light in order to be able to see? How are we able to even see anything at all? How does it even work? Well, it turns out that the eye is an incredibly complex organ. Light reflects off of an object and then it enters into our eye through the cornea. It passes through the lens and it focuses on the retina. The retina is a layer at the back of the eye that is filled with millions of these light sensitive cells that are called rods and cones. And the retina then converts it into electrical signals that are sent to the brain through the optic nerve. And when everything is functioning as it should, our brain then interprets and understands what that object is. In our passage this morning, Jesus comes across a man whose eyes were not functioning as they were designed to do. Ever since he was born, something physically was keeping that process from working. And so Jesus, in his mercy, moves toward this man and he brings healing to his eyes to restore his sight. But as we have come to expect from Jesus' ministry, particularly here in John's gospel, this miracle is about more than simply restoring an optic nerve. It was a sign, and these signs that Jesus is giving always point to something beyond themselves. So yes, it is true that in order to see physically Jesus, the man needed to have his eyesight restored. But physical eyesight alone was not enough to bring him to eternal life. In order to embrace the Son of Man with faith, to understand him as being someone who is worthy of worship, to call him Lord, well, he needed to rightly understand who he was looking at. Who is this? And that requires a miracle all its own. We're gonna walk through John chapter nine this morning in three sections. And the way that this functions is that at the beginning and at the end, there is this interaction between Jesus and this man who was born blind. And then at the end, this man who was formerly blind. And in between, in the middle, there are various responses. Uh, people who have known this man who was born blind and they're confused about what's happened here. And so they're interacting with him, trying to get to the bottom of the story. So we'll break it down in three sections. It'll look something like this. First, the sign. Jesus opened the eyes of a blind man. Second, the light of Christ either illuminates or blinds. It's the main section from 8 to 34. And then at the end, the sign's significance, that we need Jesus to open the eyes of our hearts. Let's pray and ask for that now. Father, we do ask that you would supernaturally open the eyes of our hearts. We pray that if there are those here this morning who have not yet seen the glory of Christ, that you would make it clear to them. And for those of us who have, would you give us a greater desire to savor who it is that we see in your Messiah and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Would you do that this morning by the power of your word, through your spirit. We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
First, the sign. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind man. Verses one through seven. I'll read that back into our hearing. As he passed by, it's Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and he washed and he came back seeing. The man was blind from birth. The text explicitly emphasizes that. This man has never been able to see. And his disciples understood that this blindness was unnatural. Uh, Even as we confessed this morning, even from Genesis 2, God created things intentionally that were pleasant to the eye. Uh, It is right and appropriate that we can see and enjoy his creation. But his eyes weren't functioning in the way that they were designed to do. And so it triggered a question for these disciples who came upon this. Uh, Maybe it's a question that you have wondered too. Really, it boils down to this. Who's to blame for this man's inability to see? Did he do something to deserve this? Which makes no sense uh, if you just slow down to think about it. He was not yet born. He hadn't done anything, either good or bad. Well, if that's not a possibility then, if it wasn't him, did his parents do something wrong? Is that why he was born this way? His parents sinned. Well, you don't have to be a Christian to recognize that there is a sense in which blindness is unnatural. Christians would, of course, go further. Uh, We would say that it is blindness that is a clear, distinct perversion of God's good design for humanity, as described in that creation account from Genesis 2. Well, what happened then? Why aren't things operating according to design? What is the cause of his suffering? Well, Jesus rejects both the disciples' options. Uh, It is not this man's sin. It is not a result of his parents' sin. It was an unfortunate result of being born born after the fall. Uh, This was not caused by any moral evil on the part of himself or on the part of his parents. But it might be a result of what we could call natural evil. A result of being born into a world which is marred by the sin of Adam and Eve. It is blemished by the sin of all of our first parents in that sense, Adam and Eve. So this man, who was not able to see, was going to be a visible illustration of Jesus' power and his compassion and his grace. This man had never been able to see. Uh, He could not have been in a darker state. But here comes the light of the world. Jesus does multiple things here, just in this one miracle. The first is the most obvious. He's showing mercy to this man in his suffering, and he moves towards him and restores what had been lost through the result of the fall. 
He gives him sight, physically speaking. That's the most obvious. But there's something else that's happening here in this passage. He's also giving anyone who would look on, uh, who has eyes to see, a little preview of his new creation. Isn't it curious how he uses dust from the ground to restore this man's sight? Uh, He uses the dust, he turns it into mud with his own saliva, and he anoints the man's eyes with it. Of course, we have already read, we know, that Jesus is the creator. We've seen that from the very beginning of this gospel. And we've seen also in his other signs that he was sent by the Father to usher in this messianic promised age and to bring in this new creation, a creation that would be free from sin and its effects. So just as God formed a man using the earth at creation, he was now previewing his new creation by healing the effects of the fall using the earth. And he instructs the man to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam. The man obeys. He went and he washed and he came back seeing. And that's a phrase that we're going to see repeated a couple more times in this passage. But I don't want us to slip past verse 3. Verse 3, the implications of this verse alone are enormous. Jesus is rejecting very clearly any sort of concept of karma. There is no karma in the Christian view. Do you know what I mean by that? Uh, What goes around comes around. His disciples, like many of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, assumed a direct cause and effect relationship between sin and suffering. They assumed that if you are suffering, that must be, it can only be because you have sinned in some way in order to deserve it. But that is not the Christian view. There's much more mystery here. Of course, we must begin by recognizing that scripture affirms God's providence, the confession that God preserves and governs all things in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. We want to go further and say that God arranges and does all of his works in a way that is consistent with his holy, just, and good, and loving nature. That's foundational. We can go beyond that by saying that sometimes there is a very clear, direct cause and effect relationship between our sin and our suffering. If you mess around and you play foolish games, you might mess around and get some foolish prizes. Sometimes you do reap what you sow. We can think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five as an example of this within scripture. They lied to the Holy Spirit and they were struck down right afterwards. We're given a clear interpretation of what happened there, of the cause and effect. But elsewhere in scripture, and indeed in our own experiences, Suffering serves as a stage to display God's working in our lives. You can just think of Paul's thorn in the flesh that he suffered from. So let's be very careful not to immediately interpret our own suffering or the suffering of others as a direct result of sin or lack of faith. So for example, if a hurricane or an earthquake or 
an outbreak of disease happens somewhere, you are not permitted authoritatively to interpret that as a retributive act of God. That is a mistaken notion of Jesus' disciples. It is the unhelpful counsel of Job's friends, and it is the mistaken view of the Pharisees in this story. In this man's instance, God providentially governed history in such a way that is consistent with his goodness so that this man's blindness would give way to sight and serve as a powerful illustration to those who are looking, which would include you and me, through his word, of his saving mercy. Our minds are prone to fill gaps. We don't like missing information. We don't like mystery. And so not having answers to everything is not comfortable for us. And so we try to come up with reasons. We, we like cause and effect. It helps us feel in control. But when we face suffering, rather than asking who is to blame for this suffering, we are better to ask something like this. Where is God in this suffering? How might this be an opportunity for God to display his works in me and in my life? So Jesus gives this man the ability to see. And Jesus is the light of the world, as he plainly confesses here and in last week's chapter, as Stephen helped us to understand last Sunday from that section, where Jesus leaves the light on for all who believe and follow him. But that light that is coming into the world also casts a shadow on all who love darkness and who will not come to the light. And verses 8 through 34, we see that playing out in real time in narrative form. Second, the light of Christ either illuminates or blinds. So as we've already seen very clearly in John's gospel, Jesus has been sent by the Father in order to bring light into a dark world. Uh, and through various kinds of responses, we get to see that people are responsible, uh, responding to him in very actually complex ways. There's a variety of responses, but the reality is they do finally boil down into two responses. There are two things that happen when the light of Christ hits you. It's either illuminating or it's blinding. For the formerly blind man, that light of Christ was illuminating. Uh, he, he will, at the end of this, come to see and understand who Jesus is and to embrace him in faith. But the Pharisees are going to see that same light of Christ and it's going to be blinding to them. When it hits them, they're going to draw back into the darkness. There's a line that one Puritan wrote. It goes like this. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Uh, in other words, it is that same light that is coming in, but it has a different effect depending on what it lands upon. And so for our purposes in this chapter and for our own lives and experiences, when a heart is hard, the light of Christ blinds it. When a heart is soft, it lights it up. 
Those are the only two responses in the final analysis to Jesus. But let's just watch this and see how it plays out in different ways. Uh, What happens in these verses is essentially a miniature, cosmic, chaotic, informal trial of Jesus. And all of this ultimately is taking place through the testimony of a man whose life was changed by Jesus. These Pharisees are judging Jesus, putting him on trial, and the man who was formerly blind is just giving his testimony, is just saying what happened. And so we're going to break this down into three sections. First, sometimes your testimony invites curiosity. Let me just read verses 8 through 12 for us first. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, well, how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and I washed and I received my sight. So they said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. The man's neighbors were used to seeing this man sitting by the gate. Uh, They only ever saw him for his whole life, sitting by the gate, begging for food, for money in order to support himself. But now they're seeing him up and walking around, fully able to see. You know what happens when you're used to seeing someone in a particular context? Like you see them at work, or you always see them at school, or you always see them at church, and then you see them outside of that context, and it takes you a minute to actually recognize them? That happened to me yesterday. My brother Patrick over here, I saw him at the gym, and I did not expect to see him there. And so I had to stare at him for like 15 seconds, very awkwardly. And eventually it it settled in. I didn't expect to see him there, and so it was jarring. Like, what am I looking at? Oh, oh, it is Patrick. Well, imagine seeing someone who you've ever only known to be blind suddenly walking around as if they were never blind at all. Is that? (laughs) It can't be. But it sure looks like him. Maybe it's just somebody who looks like him. It is the last person that they ever expected to see walking around able to see. But the man keeps trying to assure them, no, listen, guys, it is me. You've got the right guy. It is me. I am the same person. Well, that's hard to believe for understandable reasons. And so they ask him some follow-up questions, some details. Well, how did that happen? How are your eyes opened? And so he provides his own testimony in brief. The man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, told me to wash, and so I went, and I washed, and I came back seeing. His, his neighbors now wanted to know a little bit more information about this man called Jesus. They were curious, but he didn't give any more information because he didn't have any more information. That's all he knew. All I know is I went and I washed and I came back seeing. So the neighbors bring the man to the Pharisees, this man who had been formerly blind, they bring him to the religious rulers in order to bring them into the conversation. Back to the text, verses 13 to 17. 
they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Now, the Pharisees want to hear the testimony for themselves. How exactly did this happen? How did you receive your sight? And he gives the same story. He's been very consistent. He anointed my eyes. I went and I washed and I came back seeing. There's a problem here because this miracle was performed on the Sabbath day, the day when Jesus gave him sight and kneaded that saliva and dust into mud. Well, that was the Sabbath day. And so that does not go over well with the Pharisees. Uh, remember, the Pharisees are this group of Jews who are sticklers uh, for the letter of the law. And according to their narrow rules, you couldn't do anything that might be considered work on the Sabbath, even making mud or a miraculous healing. So some of the Pharisees then are hearing his testimony and they're deciding, well, if he's working on the Sabbath, he's breaking the Sabbath, he could not possibly be sent from God because he's breaking the Sabbath, which he was not. But some of the other Pharisees, they're looking at the same information and they're just curious. How could someone who is a sinner, someone who has not been sent from God, how would he be able to give sight to a man who's born blind? And so the Pharisees are divided about whether or not it was a prophet sent from God. Some rejected this concept and others were open to it. And so they asked the man who was healed, well, you've got eyes to see. Who do you say he is? That's a great question. And his response is very straightforward. He is a prophet. In other words, he's legit. This man who was formerly blind was healed by Jesus, physically speaking, and now he's just going about telling people the truth about what happened. That is his testimony. And in this section, that testimony is met with curiosity. Some follow-up questions. People are interested. And so for people who are coming to Jesus later in life, sometimes they've got like a track record of living in the darkness for their whole life. Right up until that point when Jesus flips the light on. And then when they come into the light, other people look at him like, hmm, is that really you? You kind of look like somebody I used to know. It must be a lookalike. Surely someone can't change like that. And sometimes people are drawn to curiosity when they see something like that. What is it that could have possibly made such a difference, such a change at a fundamental level in your life? How could the direction of your life change so dramatically? And so we each need to be ready to share our testimony. When someone asks us what happened, when we are met with curiosity, we gotta be prepared to tell the people the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done in our lives. Even if it is as simple as I went 
and I washed, and I came back seeing. But friends, not everyone is going to be open to hearing more. B, sometimes your testimony meets cynicism and fear. Let me read 18 to 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So the Pharisees cannot believe that this man who was born blind was healed by this guy, Jesus. Uh, So first of all, it is an amazing miracle, right? So we can just deal with that to begin with. It is hard to believe. People don't just gain sight. But there's something else that's going on. They don't want to believe that Jesus is a divine prophet sent from the Father, and now they're only finding ways to disprove that. They've got a preconceived conclusion about who this guy Jesus is. It's already stuck in their mind, and so now it's just a matter of finding evidence to support that verdict that they've already come to. That's what it means to be cynical. To be cynical, they view him with suspicion, they view him with skepticism, It's already locked into their mind. He's got some sort of ulterior motive. Uh, There must be something more to this. He's got some sort of hidden agenda, surely. And so that's their conclusion. Now all they have to do is sort of grasp at evidence to support their pre-made conclusion. And so they call new witnesses. Let's get some new witnesses to the stand. They want to talk to this man's parents. And they have clearly uh, chilled or intimidated these witnesses. It is a hostile setting because the parents know that if anyone confesses Jesus to be Christ, they're gonna be put out of the synagogue. That's a huge deal. To be put out of the synagogue is to be isolated from your community. They would lose touch with their religious heritage. It might impact their ability to do business with others. This is a very serious thing. It would definitely cause emotional distress for them and for all of their families. So if they publicly claimed to come out in favor of Jesus, they would be humiliated by others. So their response then makes sense in light of that. It's very minimal, isn't it? They don't lie, but they also don't go any further than the absolute minimum in order to save their own necks. Yes, this is our son. Yes, he was born blind. We cannot confirm how he's able to see now. He's old enough to provide his own testimony. You have to ask him. Son, you take the mic. They wouldn't even support their own son's affirmation, his own testimony of what Jesus had done in his life. Why? Fear. Peer pressure, 
The Bible calls it fear of man. These parents have given the Pharisees the power and indeed the right to tell them what they are supposed to think and say when it comes to Jesus. They are telling the truth, but they're also being evasive. It's not the whole truth. They're distancing themselves from the effect of any sort of conflict with the Pharisees by shaving off any sort of confrontational or controversial claims about the Christian view. And this text is very explicit about why they're doing that in verses 22 and 23. So friends, sometimes our testimonies will be met with cynicism and with fear. If someone is cynical to the claims of the gospel, uh, it might be because they have already come to a preconceived conclusion. Uh, They have closed themselves off to the possibility of the hope of the gospel. They've got a preconceived notion about who Jesus is that they're simply just not willing to let go of. And the claims of Christ are just too good to be true, perhaps. It's got to be some sort of a power play, right? Someone like that might be really sensitive to any sort of insincerity or manipulation as you are sharing the gospel with them. It takes time. It takes great care to listen carefully to understand what is it that is keeping them from being able to embrace the hope of the gospel. Maybe it was some sort of like past harmful experience. Uh, Maybe they suffered at the hands of someone who called themselves a Christian. Maybe that's really difficult for them to get over. Maybe it's simply just a genuine misunderstanding of what the Christian view of Jesus is. Pray consistently for them and tell the truth about what he has done for you and who he is. Because genuine stories of transformation in the lives of people that we know and see day in and day out will resonate even with the deepest cynic. But if someone is unwilling to support Jesus, it might also be because they are in fear. Fear of what others would think about them And let's just be honest with ourselves, in the last 15 years or so, it has become increasingly less popular to be known as a Christian in the public sphere. And so someone might not want to publicly support Jesus out of fear of being affiliated with an an outgroup, an unpopular crowd. And so when you're witnessing to someone like that, you can let them know that being a Christian doesn't mean that you have to defend and support everything someone who claims to be a Christian says or does. But it does mean you're willing to put on the jersey for Team Jesus and tell the truth about him. That he is not just a compassionate man, but that he is God. That he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But not just the world in general. Uh, The Lamb of God who has taken away your sin. And when you share this with him, you can say, this is an offer that is available to you. This offer of the gospel comes to anyone who has ears to hear and eyes to see. If this is a concept that you struggle with, fear of man, you're not alone, it's very common. There is a book in the bookstall called When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. This is kind of a classic. There's a new edition that just came out in 2023. They are in our bookstall Normally $16 online, they're $5 in the bookstall. So if you want to grab one, we've got 20 copies. Go scan the QR code, pick up a copy. I think you'll find this encouraging. 
I certainly have. But sometimes, friends, your testimony is going to provoke more than simply cynicism or even just fear. Sometimes your testimony provokes persecution. Let me read verses 24 to 34. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. And he answered, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He said to them, I have told you already, and you would not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, well, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, well, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And they cast him out. The irony here obviously is thick. These religious rulers are inviting him to give glory to God by denying Jesus. When in reality, he is giving glory to God by simply telling the truth. His own suffering was turned into an opportunity for God to display his works in his life, uh, to, to glorify himself. He is bringing glory to God with his life. He says, listen, I am not a Bible expert. I cannot explain every detail of the mystery of who Jesus is. All I'm trying to say is that I was blind and now I see. But they press him again. And this is important. It's not because they didn't believe that the miracle happened. They did. Notice verse 18 if you see that. Verse 18 tells us that the Pharisees didn't believe the miracle until they spoke to his parents. So now they know what happened. And yet even seeing this undeniable evidence, they will not admit to see what it is that they are seeing. And so they ask him again, well, how did he do it? Look, guys, <laughs> I told you, he anointed my eyes. I went and I washed and I came back seeing. My story's not changing. This is a very consistent thing here. But you will not listen. They will not listen. And now he gets a little bit spicy. Do you want the details again because you actually are finally willing to listen? Do you actually want to hear what I'm saying? Do you want to become disciples of Jesus? Do you want me to share the good news with you so that you can finally embrace it? Of course, they revile him. Again, they have set their hope on Moses and they have rejected Jesus, who is that greater prophet of whom Moses spoke himself. 
And so the man again turns up the spice in verse 30. <laughs> well, isn't this amazing? Y'all are confused about whether Jesus is sent from God, but he opened my eyes. Now listen, guys, track with me, Pharisees. By your own standard, if he was a sinner, as you're trying to force me to claim, then why would God empower him to give me sight? It's a pretty good argument. And so they had nothing to come back with, and so they just trashed him. They threw an ad hominem attack against him. They reviled him. You were born in under sin, man. Get out of here. I'm going to listen to you. They cast him out of the synagogue. Sometimes your testimony will provoke persecution from others. How do we handle that? Well, we can remember that persecution for your faith in Jesus ought not to be a surprise. It should not be unexpected. It is a part of counting the cost of what it means to actually be a disciple of Jesus. We need to come to terms with that before we even come to faith. We need to recognize, according to the teaching of Jesus, that following him might cost you relationships. That following him might cost you discrimination that it might actually bring about physical harm. So in prayerful dependence upon the Holy Spirit, ask for wisdom. When you're facing persecution and sharing your gospel, ask for wisdom in how you share the gospel. And we have to be wise as serpents and innocents as doves. That does not mean that you compromise on the gospel but it also does mean that you don't seek to be quarrelsome. Share the gospel with love. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be seen as sons of your Father who is in heaven. Find strength and support in the communion of saints. Of course, I'm speaking of fellow church members. We get to encourage one another when we face persecution outside in the world. It's one of the great privileges of being a member of a church is having these sorts of relationships. But the communion of saints can go back further than just this time and place. Our communion of saints goes back to those who have been enduring and persecution uh, with courage and faithfulness back to the beginning of the church. We can go back to Stephen, that first Christian martyr, not our pastor of outreach and discipleship, although it does include him. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of Jesus. These are his words. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. The man who was born blind testifies to the truth of what happened and now he's been cast out. And that could be devastating for this man. But do you know who loves and seeks the outcast? Come on. Third, the sign's significance. We need Jesus to open the eyes of our hearts. Verses 35 to 41. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? 
Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who may see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So Jesus returns to the side of this man who was cast out in order to draw out a confession of faith from him. He asks him if he believes in the Son of Man, which again, Son of Man is a title for Jesus that is an affirmation of his divinity, of his authority over all of his creation. It's interesting to think that this man who was born blind, who was healed by him, didn't even fully understand who Jesus was until this very moment. But he does see and he trusts Jesus. Well, sure, I'll believe in the Son of Man. Who is he? He trusts Jesus, and so he trusts Jesus' testimony about who the Son of Man is. And Jesus tells him, verse 37, guys, my goodness, This man, who had spent his whole life never being able to see the beautiful colors of a sunset, this man who was never able to gaze upon a beautiful night sky filled with stars, this man who had never seen a majestic mountain, he had never seen flowers in full bloom, he had never seen a rainbow after a rainstorm, He had never seen the soaring beauty even of the temple. He had never witnessed with his own eyes a genuine act of kindness or compassion. But what is the most beautiful and the most awesome thing that this man has ever laid his new eyes upon is Jesus. And in that moment, He believes and he worships him. This outcast man, literally the last person anyone would ever expect to see Jesus has now seen him. Listen, it's not with his eyes, it's with the eyes of his heart. Notice the progression of how this man refers to Jesus throughout this chapter. Verse 11. Verse 11, he sees that this man is called Jesus. He is the man called Jesus. Look at verse 17. There he calls him a prophet sent from God. And then in verse 38, he calls him Lord. (laughs) And he worships him. The light of Christ has blinded the hard-hearted who refuse to see what they're seeing. Those who refuse to believe in Jesus. But for this man, whose heart was soft to the gospel, the light of Christ has shone and lit his heart up. The same creator who spoke and said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into his heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Jesus Christ. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. What is the state of your heart when you hear the gospel? And this is a question that is applicable to all of us, whether you have already joined Team Jesus or not. We all need to be continually reminded of that which is of first importance, that Jesus is the Son of Man, that he is worthy of worship, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised. He now intercedes for us, and he will return to judge the quick and the dead. If you are a Christian, this here is a call to worship. If you have seen Jesus for who he is, take a moment right now silently and fire up a prayer of praise. Your ability to see him is not because you're more humble than anybody else. Your ability to see and perceive and understand who Jesus is is not because you're more perceptive. It's not because you're more wise. It's not because you're more smart. It's because you have had the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Come on. He has seen your suffering. He has drawn towards you in mercy. He has anointed your eyes. And in response to that irresistible grace, you went and you washed and you came back seeing. Friends, there is no doubt that he gets us. <laughs> he is compassionate, he is servant-hearted, he is a sympathetic high priest. He is truly man, yes, amen. But that's not all. He is the divine son of man. He is Lord. The question isn't whether he gets us, but do you get him? The Pharisees saw Jesus, but they became blind. They did not, and they would not believe what their eyes were seeing. Meanwhile, this man who was born blind from birth was given physical sight, but so much more importantly, he was given spiritual sight. Here's our key takeaway from John 9. We need God to give us eyes to truly see and savor Jesus. We need God to give us eyes to truly see and savor Jesus. Your salvation is all about God's glory. It is the stage upon which God displays his mercy and his grace and his light, both to you and to others who are looking on. The most amazing miracle in John chapter 9 is not that this man gained ability to see the most amazing miracle is his desire to worship Jesus. That's the miracle. Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.